Welcome to Raise the Line with Osmosis from Elsevier, seeking solutions with leading experts on how to increase healthcare capacity so people can get the care they need during the pandemic and beyond. Hi, I'm Shiv Gulbani, and today on Raise the Line, I'm happy to welcome Dr. Julie Politsis, who's the Dean of the Charles E. Smith College of Medicine and Vice President of Medical Affairs at Florida Atlantic University. Being the first woman neurosurgeon to become a dean, Dr. Politsis oversees the college's innovative medical student and graduate medical education programs in partnership with a consortium of five regional hospitals. She's also a board-certified practicing neurosurgeon and a national expert in multidisciplinary pain and movement disorders, including Parkinson's disease. Prior to joining FAU, Dr. Politsis served as Division Chief of Functional Neurosurgery and Chair and Professor of the Basic Neuroscience Department at Albany Medical College in New York. She is the 2023 president of the North American Neuromodulation Society, the first woman ever to lead the organization, and president-elect of the American Society for Stereotactic and Functional Neurosurgery. In addition to all of that, she's published over 200 journal articles, four books, and numerous chapters. So Dr. Politsis, thanks for taking the time to be with us today. Oh, thanks so much. The, The pleasure is mine. So I would like to start first with learning more about you and what got you interested in medicine and then ultimately neurosurgery. Thanks so much. You know, it seems so long ago, but I I actually decided I wanted to be a doctor in high school and ended up joining a BSMD program where you could get your bachelor's and your MD in six years instead of eight. Still have some of those around right now. Some of them are more seven or, you know, eight and then, um, yeah, but, you know, I think it takes some of the pressure off in terms of guaranteed admission. And, you know, then when I got to medical school, just fell in love with the brain. It was my favorite class in my first year and actually went into a lab. I thought I had wanted to be a neurologist, but the lab was in the neurosurgery department and I met the residents and they took me under their wing. And, you know, as soon as I got into an OR, the rest was history. Yeah, it's fascinating. And I feel very drawn to your your background and because neurosurgery is why I got interested in medicine too. So my background, as you may know, I did two years of med school at Hopkins, took time off to start osmosis. Elsevier bought us a year and a half ago. Now I'm actually back in Baltimore, finishing my next two years of of med school. And I'm 34, so neurosurgery feels like a long way to go. But uh, do you know Daniele Rigamonti? Uh, the nurse. I do. He was my mentor and big osmosis supporter from the beginning. So, and he has been on this podcast too. Oh, that's wonderful. And, you know, I think it's sometimes, you know, it seems like such a long time. And, you know, I actually did a PhD during my residency and then a fellowship. So I trained for nine years after med school. And when I was going for that ninth year, you know, I, I, I thought, Oh my goodness, what am I doing? But, you know, that was actually like the the crucial moment because that allowed me to specialize in functional neurosurgery, which defines everything I do today. So, you know, my, my advice for you is, you know, if this is something that draws you regardless of, you know, whether it makes sense or not, if it's something that's going to, you're going to enjoy every day, go for it. That's great advice. And we'll definitely get into advice at the end of this, but career zigzag is certainly a theme that comes comes across with the Raise Line podcast and the guests we've had. Can you talk to us a bit about functional neurosurgery? I think it's a very exciting area that many people may not know that term, but people are more and more excited about it because of things like Neuralink and brain computer interfaces finally showing so much progress. It feels like every every week or month, there's a new new breakthrough. 
Yeah, I'm totally biased. So I think functional neurosurgery is the coolest kind of neurosurgery. And, you know, it actually, I became interested when I was a junior resident. I think, you know, sometimes in neurosurgery, you see patients that have brain tumors or aneurysm ruptures and, you know, just devastating complications. And deep brain stimulation had just come about at the time I was training. And I saw, gosh, what a difference this can make in people's quality of life. So really, I, I became interested in uh, in functional neurosurgery because of deep brain stimulation and treating Parkinson's. I had mentioned that, you know, I'd gotten my PhD during my residency. So, you know, that was in neurophysiology. So not only was I able with this career choice to really help people, but I was able to use that scientific creative part of my brain to really think about these topics. And, you know, right now, a lot of the things we do in, in functional are electrical devices and electrical stimulation. And, you know, I think this technology is getting cooler and cooler with some of the brain computer interface things. But, you know, I think electricity is just one thing that we can deliver, right? So, you know, now there's been recent excitement about thermal ablations or how do you deliver ultrasound? And, you know, then of course there's been stops and starts of stem cell therapy and gene therapy, but we're using the same type of techniques. So it, it, it's just always an exciting time to be in functional nurse surgery. And I'm fortunate that, you know, I have some of the best colleagues in the world in it as well. Yeah. Amazing. So how do you, you know, I'm always really impressed with when we have people like yourself on the podcast who are like, we were talking about Dr. Charles Lockwood, who was on the podcast earlier, you know, very successful OBGYN, very great researcher and also administrator. You wear so many hats. What percent of your time do you spend in each of these academic research clinical, would you say, and, and administrative? Charlie's a great guy. And, you know, I think I think the world of him and, you know, ha, is a role model in so many ways. And, you know, I, I think I've always been able to balance things. Having said that, you know, there's, there's times when you're going to be busier clinically than you are research-wise and administrative-wise. So when I started my practice, it's important to realize that it doesn't happen instantly. And so I started my practice and, you know, first and foremost, you have to get good at your job. And so your primary job or my primary job was to be a good surgeon. So, you know, I think if you start with that basis, then some of the other things happen. You know, I made sure that I had some protected time to do research, but oftentimes these things happen in series. I'm a big believer that, you know, our competitive advantage as neurosurgeons in the research space is that we're interfacing with the brain. We're interfacing with the patients. We know what some of these real issues are that need to be solved and can think about some of the technologies in order to do so. And so for me, that was a way to have a successful research program building off my clinical experience. There's other researchers that manage to completely separate the things, you know, where they have a research program a little bit in one direction and a clinical program in another direction, and they're much more talented than I am. I like it that they, you know, my two worlds kind of intersect. And then, you know, I think from the administrative standpoint, you know, I've been dean here at Florida Atlantic for 14 months. And, you know, so when you're in a new job, you're always going to dedicate more 
time to getting the skills to succeed in that job. But at the same point, it was really important to me, especially coming in new from a completely different system, a completely different geography, to understand what the fa- what challenges faced my faculty. And in order to do that, I, I needed to practice and I needed to perform research so that I could be the best leader possible for them. And, you know, I could inspire students and learners to go in any of those disciplines. Yeah, no, absolutely. I think it's a very powerful place to be because when you talk to students or other faculty mentees, you know, you can talk about all these things with with ease, it seems. So, you know, tell us a bit about your decision to go into into leadership and academic medicine and and then the decision to go to Florida. I mean, the New York to Florida transition is pretty common. I say this as a as a Floridian, somebody who grew up in Florida myself in Cape Canaveral. But uh, yeah, I would love to hear more about your administrative leadership track. Yeah. So, you know, I'm a big fan of getting more training along the way. You can probably see that from my credentials. So I do do more than go to school. But, you know, I I was my first experience with getting more training was in a junior faculty development program when I was four years into my career. And in that experience, I had a really terrific uh, mentor, Dr. Luann Thorndike. She's still at University of Massachusetts. And she was talking to me about what I wanted to do. And I had not, the idea of being Dean hadn't congealed in my mind yet. But as soon as I explained to her what my passions were, she said, Julie, next time somebody asks you, you're going to say, I want to be the Dean. And, you know, and it was interesting because I I reflected on that often and, you know, thought about, do I really want to do that? And sure enough, I did. And then I was lucky enough I moved to Albany at that time, back to Albany. I had gone to medical school there. So that was like 12 years later, I came back and, you know, I was chief of functional neurosurgery and, you know, I had done a good job. So my chairman advocated for me to the dean. And so the dean met with me, Vince Verdile, who's uh, still a, a mentor to me. He was is one of the longest standing deans ever. And he said, what do you want to do? And I said, you know, and he said, you want to be a chair? And then I kind of looked at him and then he pointed to his seat and he said, you want my chair? And, you know, I said, not yours, but, you know, I think that's the way I want to go. And so he was just amazing and mentored me for this position. So I will tell you, you know, I became subsequently became chair and was able to learn from his experience. But when I walked into this position, he had me so well prepared because we kind of went through where my expertise was and where it was lacking. And he created kind of a, a own personal mentorship program with for me where I got experience with more with the finances and with philanthropy and other. So to the next part of the question, how do you end up in Florida? Well, in Palm Beach County, most people are from New York, but, you know, so it, it, it does feel comfortable. Having said that, you know, a, a lot depends, like anything in life, on timing. And when it became time for me to start looking for a job as a dean, there were several jobs available. This one resonated with me because I was looking for a clinician scientist who was an expert in neuroscience. So... I thought they'd made the position statement for me. <laughs> That's awesome. So tell us a bit about FAU. I obviously know quite a bit about it, having grown up in Florida and having friends who've gone through the both the undergraduate as well as the medical programs. But in your in your view, what are the things that attracted you to FAU? And where do you see it differentiating over the next you know, five, 10 years under your leadership, hopefully? Yeah. So it's much more fun to answer that question post-March Madness than it was <laughs> beforehand. Florida Atlantic made the final four. And, you know, I, I think it, 
there's a lot of things with that story that tell our story in general. You know, I, I think we we actually are, are, are pretty large. We have six campuses across all the way from Davie to Vero Beach. So a, a wide span over four counties that are about four million people. And, you know, we have about 30,000 students on campus. So it's hard to say we're the little engine that could, but in many ways we were. And, you know, I, I think that Dusty, who was, you know, the, the coach that led us to the the final four really was a a gentleman that is a gentleman that cares about the kids and you know really enforces the concept of team and you know as opposed to some of the other teams you know we had nine people that could play and so we weren't relying on our starting five and you know I, I think that that team spirit is something that's so integral and reflective of FAU. So FAU's College of Medicine, I affectionately refer to as my startup college. It's been around since 2011. It just was built on people that are in, as impassioned about healthcare as, you know, as Dusty May is about basketball. So really just people that work so hard to get us accredited, start our medical school, get our residency training programs up and running. And now I have the really fun job of kind of looking at other things. So now we're looking kind of at the clinical enterprise and at the research enterprise, and I'm having a really fun time doing that. We have outstanding leadership that has said their two main priorities were athletics and health, and we've seen how athletics went. So I am sure health is soon to follow. (laughs) That's that's awesome. Uh, I love the startup, the mentality, obviously, I'm biased having started the company out of of med school myself. But this, it, it feels like a very innovative, exciting time, both because all the net migration into Florida and investments, and it seems like a really great place to be, especially your, your area, and then the opportunities to, to innovate. So we launched this podcast at the beginning of the COVID pandemic and call it Raise the Line as, as in ways to strengthen our healthcare system, ranging from digital health and value-based medicine to how do you train more healthcare professionals and how do you keep them in practice longer? Because a lot of them have obviously left the profession and burned out along the way. So can you talk to us a bit about some of the macro trends you're seeing in healthcare over the next you know, couple of years, including maybe even artificial intelligence? Charles Lockwood and I spent a lot of time talking about that one, too. What gets you excited? What gets you worried? How are you training the clinicians of the future? Great question and a lot to unpack there that we could tackle in a in a variety of ways. At first, you know, just a little bit about my ecosystem here in Florida. Florida is great at very many things. Having said that, on U.S. News and World Reports, we rank 25th out of 50 in healthcare in the U.S. And when you dig into those numbers a little bit deeper, 41 uh, we're 41st in access, so meaning that it's really problematic to get in and see a physician. An example that really resonated with me was, you know, if you were a woman that gets diagnosed with a lump on her breast, on average in Florida, it takes you 30 days to see a doctor. Hmm. So national average is three to five days. Wow. And so, you know, we have to do better. And, you know, what's what's going into that? Well, it's an interesting, you know, it's an interesting market. And, you know, I don't know if it's reflective. It's reflective of certain markets. So we have many of our communities where the average age is 65. And we know that people that are over 65 use healthcare at five to eight times what people under 65 use healthcare. If you look at our doctors in this market, 
40% of our physicians are over 60. And so sometimes, you know, like as you get older, you may not want to work a full FTE. And so, you know, we see some of those numbers change. And, you know, as everybody in New York seems to move down uh, to Florida and from elsewhere, but in Palm Beach County, it's New York, New Jersey. You know, I, I think these numbers are going to get even worse. So a couple of things that we're doing, we've been a teeny tiny med school. So we had 64 students and over the next two years going to get up to 104 students. And, you know, it may not seem like that big of a jump, but it's 62%. And then if you look at how many extra patients those 40 students can see over their career, you know, it's, it's a pretty big number. And we're doing the same with our nursing school as well. So, you know, I, I think we're, we're trying to make more doctors and nurses. Then we're trying to figure out ways to keep people happy. And, you know, I, I think there's a lot of, a lot of things that can demotivate people. You know, when you look at all the burnout issues, a lot of it comes from the time spent in the EHR and the time spent, you know, not actually doing why many people went into medicine, which was to take care of patients. So, you know, I, I would echo a little bit what where you may have gone with Dr. Lockwood. We need to have better technologies in order to free up that time and maintain that physician patient relationship. And that holds true for all of, you know, all of healthcare. So, you know, how can AI do that? If chat GPT can, you know, write, you know, uh, talks and essays and, you know, take the USMLE and what, you know, it certainly can help us with this issue. And then, you know, I think there's other technologies, you know, there was one of the things that stuck with me is, you know, within this nursing shortage, we particularly have a shortage of nurses that want to be bedside nurses. It's a really tough job. And, you know, it's sometimes a really thankless job, but, you know, for all of us that have been in the hospital, that bedside nurse is, is really like what you remember about being in, in the hospital and how they care for you. But, you know, one of the things they've done in Japan is actually have, you know, use the robots or the tugs to dispense medication. So is there a way we can take some of those tasks that may be less glamorous and especially those that are prone to error and automate them? You know, I'm sure there are. Yeah, no, it's a super exciting time and certainly something we like to cover here. We've had people like Eric Topol on this podcast, who you may know, talking about the future, because as a dean, you have a great opportunity, but also responsibility to, to train the doctors and nurses to be able to practice in the future, right? So concepts like value-based medicine, too, where I know in South Florida, there's a huge rise in value-based medicine, like ChenMed and, and other things like that. Do you want to talk a bit about maybe the healthcare model and like how you think about that? Because, you know, even your field of neurosurgery very much has been fee for service for a long time. But how are you thinking about like health policy changes and what we need to be doing that doing there to to increase access? Yeah, I mean, there there's so many different directions that you can you can go with this. And I, I think that, you know, one of the one of the expressions is that, you know, you've been at one medical school, you've been at one medical school, right? So each model is a little bit different. And, you know, uh, the, the model I'm at is very different from where I came from in Albany. So in Albany, you know, it may be more of what you think is a, a, of as a traditional model, where, you know, the practice, the medical school and the medical center were all one, not 
quite one, but you know, they had a, 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 somebody that was generally overseeing them. And, you know, here where I am at Florida Atlantic, we have traditionally been a community-based medical school. And so that means that my learners go to a series of hospitals and, you know, I have my under my medical students at 10 different hospitals. I have my residents at five different hospitals. So what does that model look for, look like? And, you know, I think for for me, in terms of medical education, it, it's no secret that the clinical enterprise funds medical education. And so we have to think about how funds can flow differently to accommodate those those needs. Mm-hmm. Thinking more about kind of the, the macro environment outside, and I think academic medicine and academic hospitals are, are essential. I mean, they have a tremendous economic impact on the landscape, uh, 22 billion dollars in Florida alone. They bring in high high paying jobs and, you know, bring in brain power and they are so good for the economy in so many ways. So I, I think the community needs to understand that. And, you know, I think everybody wants good health care, but I think sometimes they don't understand like the, the economic impact that good health care brings to the area. Amazon certainly does, you know, on their top five things they look for when they are going to establish a big facility, they're looking at whether there's an academic medical center. So, you know, I think people need to understand those dynamics. In terms of value-based care, you know, I think there's a lot of different opportunities to do things smarter and to do things more efficiently. And, you know, I, I think that we're being forced to do that in this market. You know, COVID kind of turned everything on its head. And, you know, now as we're looking at different medical practices and how we practice medicine, you know, I think the time for innovation and really thinking differently is upon us. Yeah, 100%. I mean, we talked about the, the crisis is a terrible opportunity to waste. And, you know, it feels like there have been a lot of changes in healthcare because of the COVID pandemic that hopefully we can we can take into the future, like telehealth, digital health, remote patient monitoring, aging in place, these kind of themes. I know we're coming up on time, so I just had a couple other quick questions for you. The first is, as you know, Osmosis is a teaching company. And so we like to ask uh, our guests if they could snap their fingers and teach any audience any subject matter, whether it's a video or a course or whatever it may be, what would it be for you? Like, who would you want to teach and what would you want to teach them and, and why? It's a great question. And, you know, I, I think there's so many things you could talk about, but, you know, I, I, I would like to think about the the thing that is most influential to the, the most number of people. And, you know, I have had the opportunity to not only attend leadership training, but to do a good amount of leadership training for people. And, you know, when you look at highly successful people in medicine and probably in any career, one of, one of the things that really makes people uh, capable of accomplishing great things is having a support system that tells them they can do it and helps them to persevere. And so I think of all the things, you know, just making sure that you're surrounding yourself with the the right cheerleaders and the right people to get where you want to go in this life. And, and, you know, if you're not, find those people, they're out there and they want to help you. So I, I think, you know, I would spend time talking about the value of that support system, mentors, sponsors, coaches, and getting place people to a place where they can best succeed. Yeah, that that's wonderful. That's really, really insightful. And I agree for personal experience as well. 
people like Daniel Rigamonti, who I mentioned at the beginning, the neurosurgeon at Hopkins. What is your general advice to our audience about approaching their careers in, in healthcare and, and meeting the challenges of this moment and beyond? You know, I think we were talking a little bit, you know, at the start of this about, you know, different, uh, different careers and what you want to do. And I, I would say, you know, follow your passion. It just makes sure if there is something you want to do and you love to do, go for it and go after it and figure it out. And there will be a way, you know, I am, I, I may, you know, make uh, sometimes be wrong, but I'm never in doubt. And, you know, I just move forward and follow that. The worst thing to do is to have regrets. Don't let life happen to you. Just, you know, go out and grab it by the horns. I love that. Yeah. It's a great mentality where you can't, you can't go wrong, right? You may need to switch trajectories or whatever, but the the decisions you made in the past, mistakes or not, are what made you who you are today. And you're just going to go forward. Last question. Is there anything else you want to leave our audience with about you, FAU, neurosurgery, healthcare, or anything else that's top of mind for you? Mm. I'm really excited to be at Florida Atlantic. And, you know, I, I think we're doing something really special here to change the way healthcare is delivered in South Florida. So keep an eye on us, you know, and, and make sure to, you know, bet on us. You know, if you'd bet on the basketball team, some people made a fortune. He was actually a really nice guy. He ended up like sharing some of the wealth to get some of the students and others to the game. But we're doing great things. And, you know, it, it's really a fun time to be in, in South Florida with the people coming down here, the resources coming down here and the, the spirit for innovation and entrepreneurship. Well, that's exciting. We'll definitely keep an eye out. And I know a bunch of our audience do train at FAU and in and, and other Florida programs. So we're really excited to have you on the show, Dr. Politsis. And I want to thank you not only for taking the time to be with us, but more importantly, what you've been doing for your entire career to raise the line and strengthen our healthcare system. Oh, thanks so much. And thanks so much for having me. This was a pleasure. Of course. And with that, thank you to our audience for checking out today's show. And remember to do your part to raise the line. We're all in this together. Take care. If you like this podcast, please share it on your social channels. You can also subscribe to the series and check out all of our episodes at osmosis.org slash raise the line podcast. Mm -hmm.